David thinks we're going to get back together and start discussing some Bible studies of actual books of the Bible, but by the time we do that, David's beard may be six feet long and gray. <laughs> we're continuing to talk about Monogeneus Weos. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Monogeneus Weos. That's the Greek. That word, that phrase John is using, is using to signify that this one about whom he is speaking in John 3.16 is not your average person, not an everyday man or son, but he is absolutely unique in his own personal identity. He's unique as to his origins, He's unique as to his coming into the world. He's unique as to his work. He's unique as to his significance in time. He's unique as to his significance in humanity. He's unique as to his significance eternally. He's unique in every and any category whatsoever. This one is unique. And again, when I say I, I hope it's the Holy Spirit. So please forgive me sometimes for saying I. I mean Holy Spirit. But when we talk about Jesus, hopefully what's happening in here is that God is enlarging our understanding and concept and vision and therefore experience of this man, that he's just not a man who came to earth, lived. Yes, he went to the cross and he saves my soul by the shedding of his blood and so Yes, but there is so much more. We need to think of him in cosmic terms. Can you get that? We need to think of this one who came into the world and who has ascended out of the world and who has sent his Holy Spirit in cosmic terms. This is, if you would, and this is not, this term is not indigenous to me. Others use it. He is the cosmic Christ. Cosmic Christ. So when we think of him in any category, whatever, we need to think of him in relation to the entire cosmos, in relation to all time whatsoever. That's how we need to think of him. And one other thing, and, and I, I am itching to do it today, but I won't today. I'll try not to do it today. One other major weakness that the church typically has when thinking of this monogenes weos, this only begotten, this unique son, we fail to think of him in relation to ourselves appropriately. 
when we see and study this man, this God-man, this God-man on earth in the earthly incarnation and now in his heavenly eternal incarnation as the heavenly man, we fail to see that we are in him and that what God has done has been for the purpose of achieving his will that we would be the expression of Christ, that the church would be the expression of this glorified man. Do we see that? And so every time we study Christ and every time we look at Jesus and every time we're seeing what's going on, we need to see the church in this man because the whole reason and purpose of God for creation and sending the Son and the whole work of the Son on earth and the whole work of the Son forever in heaven is for the achievement of the Father's purpose. That the glory of this hesed, this loving kindness, this absolute unique love, this filial family, filial relationship between the Father and the Son would be manifested in a humanity therefore necessitating the creation of man and the coming of the Son of Man so that in the Son of Man, God's people may be able to be gathered up into, if you would, corporately, relationally into this man so that God would have a people who are the expression of his risen reigning, ruling, returning son. Amen? And so let's, this morning, just do a little bit more of when we see and talk about Christ, especially as he is in Colossians, as he is in Ephesians. We see the church ourselves as the living expression of this man. I don't want to go any more into it today. But I, I just feel we're going to have to do that. And it was not something I had even anticipated or thought about. So this morning, let's continue to look at how John uses the Greek monogeneus, remember, to describe Jesus as God's unique, one-of-a-kind son. We saw that last week. You remember, we saw in Genesis 22, the verse 2, verse 12. In the Greek translation, the Septuagint translation, which the Hebrew was translated in the Babylonian exile about 250 uh, B.C. by 70 to 72 um, uh, Jewish um, translators. That's why it's called the Septuagint 70. And it was taken, the, the Hebrew, the original Hebrew was translated into the Greek. And look, there was nobody on earth who were more particular and more precise about the translation than these Jewish scholars. Can you get that? These are Jews. They love their word. They love their Torah. They love the Tanakh, which are the three main divisions of their scriptures. They love it. They are monotheists. They are strictly and, and passionately and radically, zealously defending of monotheism. There is only one God, Yahweh. You remember that? 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You remember in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and they are the ones that translate the Hebrew into Greek. And the word that John uses in 3.16, monogeneus, we ask, means son. Monogeneus is the word we're talking about. Means unique. And so when we turn to Genesis 22, verse 2 and verse 12, as among other examples, we see that when the Lord says to Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Take your son. Which one? Your only son. I got two. Now, when he says only son, the Greek is monogeneus weos. So it can't be only son of the flesh because he has how many? Two. It has to be that unique son, that son between the two of them who is unique to God, set aside for God, for God's purposes. Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Well, certainly, Abraham loves both boys. You see that in chapter 16. Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Well, it isn't that Abraham doesn't love Ishmael, but when God says whom you love, he means that has said that special love of that special, unique son. That is a display of the father's love for the son, of God's love for the Lord Jesus, you see. And then he finally says what? Isaac. And I can just see Abraham say, oh, oh, Isaac. Oh, okay. And so he does that. Now, Isaac is called Abraham's monogeneous weos. Unique son. Because he and Jesus share several areas that are unique. So this morning, we are just going to go through eight. I think I have eight here. Uh, there may be more, but don't hang me on this. These are at least eight very obvious ones. There are a couple of others, you know, uh, that could or could not be, and we'd have to stretch it a little bit. But there are eight distinctions that monogeneous or uniqueness relates to about Isaac that Isaac prefigures a coming man or now the man who's coming. Prefigures means what? He represents in partial shadowy form someone else. Remember what Hebrews 1.1 says, God who in times past through the prophets. In other words, God has spoken to us in the Old Testament in types, in shadows, in prefigurings, in hints. He hasn't made it clear. He's kind of given us glimpses. It's like being in a room and you get little glimpses of light once in a while. You see something there you didn't see and then whatever. And so when you see your shadow, you're seeing something that represents you. Right? How many of you are your shadow? How many of you know your shadow represents you? It is a representation. So you get an outline, Gail, of who you are when you see your shadow. It, it's, it, it, okay, it says a little bit about that, but it really isn't you. But it is a little bit about you, and it's enough about you that we know it is you, some kind of way. And so when the light goes on and we see Gail, we don't need to look at or examine the shadow anymore. We see Gail. But it is helpful to know that the shadow is representative, and so the Old Testament is the shadow of Jesus. And anything in and about the New Testament must, M-U-S-T, must, 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 must be shadowed in the Old Testament. There's nothing new as to 
This has never existed before in the New Testament. It is all in the old, but in what? Shadowy forms. Shadowy forms. The ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne of God is in the Old Testament where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Where do you see that? In shadowy forms. Joseph is second to Pharaoh ruling the land of Egypt. And when Joseph sits in the throne of Pharaoh, second to Pharaoh, then the people of Israel are brought into the land of Goshen. When Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, then the people of God are brought in to the, to the place, the land, the church, the kingdom of God. Do you see it? It's there. It's there. But we don't understand it until we see the reality. I don't understand my shadow until I see the reality. Then I, oh, that's what that means. So let's look at eight, eight pictures. First of all, both of them are promised sons. Both of these sons are promised. They're promised in the Old Testament, promised in the New. So I think, are the scriptures in your notes? Okay. Are they printed out or just referenced? Okay. Let's look at one. I mean, there are more than one, but let's just look at one. I know Micah too. Yeah, there, there's others, and we'll get into some of the others. John, I'm sorry, Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child will be born. Unto us a child is born. Now, what is that? That's a promise of a child who is coming. Do we see that? Are oh, you with me today? Okay. Unto us a son is given. Now, wait a minute. This is different. How many of you know that when your son was born, you said a son was born? Or do you say a child was born, a son was given to me? No, the child, the son. Are you, but you see, there's a distinction here. A son will be born. I'm sorry, a, a person will be born. A child will be born. But this person will be a son who is given you already see the grace of God the giving of God so a son is given where do you see that in the new testament for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son do you see John three sixteen in Isaiah 6 uh, uh, 9 6 are you with me today we see it. We see how the word begins to come together. These puzzle pieces, if you would, begin to be, oh, that's, I see that, I see that. And it all of a sudden begins to make the Old Testament a treasure trove. Wow. Well, who is the son? And the government will be upon his shoulders. Okay, he'll be a king. Or maybe a, a governor. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, he'll be able to counsel people. Mighty God. Who, what, how can a child who was born upon the earth be called mighty God? The word is in the Greek theos, meaning God himself. Elohim, he is identified as God himself. Eternal father. <laughs> this is the one who was I will be a father to Israel, prince of peace. Genesis 17, 15 to 16. Remember, the son was a promise. Abraham said, God said to Abraham, I will bless her, Sarah. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. So in the Old Testament, you have a promise of a son. In the New Testament, well, 
I, I, I left that out. Remember, the, the, the Lord will come, go to Mary and say, by this time, you're going to have a child and so on. Okay. Secondly, I've left that one out. But you remember that there, that promise was made to Mary. Both births, Isaac's birth and Jesus' birth, are miracle births. Are you aware of that? Why? Isaac's mama, what was her name? Hmm? Sarah, remember Sarah? What was wrong with Sarah? She, she's barren. And here she is, this old lady, and it's impossible for her to have a natural birth. I mean, you don't get pregnant when you're 90 years old or whatever. Aren't you glad, ladies? Aren't you glad that you don't get pregnant after about the age of 40 or 50 or whatever it is? Oh, don't do that to me. Don't do that. It's a miracle birth. So Luke 1, 30, 34, the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will be conceived in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Remember, Matthew 1, 21 tells you why, because he will save his people from the sin. And Mary said, how can this be since I'm a virgin? How can this be? This has to be a miracle. Well, remember the promise made to uh, Abraham. Then Abraham said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Are you kidding me? We're in the nursing home. And you're going to tell me that we in six, nine months are going to have a child? We're in the nursing home. Both of them are miraculous births. You see, these are foreshadowings of why this child, Isaac, is called Monogeneus Weos, unique son, because his life is an identifying mark of the unique son who came into the world. I'm not going through this very quickly, am I? Both birth, births were supernatural announcements. Remember Genesis 18.1. Now the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So the angel of the Lord comes into the camp of Abraham. He sees these, one, this one man, these three men, one, three, one, you know, it's going back and forth. Is it one, three, whatever? Well, there's a message right there. But he knows it's God. It's a heavenly announcement. Next year at this time, you're going to have a son. Well, look what happens with Mary. Luke two nineteen to 12. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will be to all the peoples. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The birth of Jesus announced heavenly, or by the angels. The fourth uniqueness, both Isaac and Jesus are to be sacrificed by the Father who loves them. Both of them are going to be offered into sacrifice, both of them. Genesis 22, 1 to 2, God tested Abraham. And by the way, God isn't saying that, look, I'm going to do this to Abraham. I hope to goodness he gets through this because I need this man. He's my man. If I don't have Abraham, I can't preach the gospel. And Abraham's my hands and feet, and without him, I... No, that isn't God. That's a man-centered religion. Have you ever been told God needs you? That's man-centered religion. God doesn't need us. God condescends to use us, but he certainly doesn't need us.
And so, what am I doing here? Let me look at it again. Oh, God is drawing out of Abraham what is in Abraham. How many of you told your children, you know the answer already, where are your toys right now? Now, you know where they are. They're where they shouldn't be. But why did you ask that? Because you're dumb or you want your children, something in your children to come out and to be confessed. You see, this is what God is doing. He's drawing out of Abraham that which is in Abraham. And as he's doing, he's also creating greater faith in Abraham. And so he says to Abraham, Abraham, he says, here I am. He says, take now your son, we've read this, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. The father is going to sacrifice the son. Acts 2.23, remember Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Jesus was delivered over by the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed him to a cross. Now, I didn't do this on purpose, but what other identifying uniqueness did, you, did I just read in Genesis? Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and, and, and Isaac, and take him to what? The land of Moriah. Anybody see anything there, Moriah? Where is Moriah? Where's the mountains of Moriah, Mount Moriah? It is part of the mountains that surround Jerusalem. And it's the mountain. And when we talk about mountain, we're not talking about 62,000 foot mountains here. We're talking about kind of really very tall hills, you know, a couple of thousand 1,500 feet, 2,000, whatever. For us, these are mountains. But for people from mountains, these are not mountains. And so Jerusalem lies kind of like in a, in a little bowl. There are mountains around. It's kind of like in a little bowl there. And so it's one of the mountain areas that's outside of the city of Jerusalem. So Mount Moriah is, or that area there is where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Today, it is pretty well agreed by Jewish people and so on that Mount Moriah is also the location of, of, uh, of uh, the temple. The temple was built on Mount Moriah, and part of that extended Mount Moriah area was just three or 400 feet or so outside the city wall. That's where the cross was, Golgotha. Jesus is crucified in the same area where Isaac was offered to be sacrificed. Boy, what luck, huh? What luck? What coincidence? And you know I use the word luck as a demonic activity. Don't ever use that word luck in real language. It's demon. Don't do that. Say bless. Luck is not for believers. It's for unbelievers. Both were laid on a wooden both were, both were laid on the wood to be sacrificed. You know, both of them carried the wood, I should have said. I didn't quite put it right. 22.9 of Genesis, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and burned to bound his son and laid him on the altar. And by the way, he put the wood on the son's shoulders and the son goes up the hill with him. The son bears the wood to the place of sacrifice. What about Jesus? Well, I've got it backward. Okay, both of them are bound on the cross. Okay, Abraham bounds, binds. Isaac to the altar, and Jesus is bound to the cross by the nails. You got that? Now, this is the next one. Then God said, take your son and sacrifice him there. 
And Jesus, therefore, went up bearing his own cross. I, I must have been sleeping when I did some of this. Well, anyway, Isaac carries the wood. Jesus carries the cross. They both carry the implement of their death. Oh, by the way, Second Chronicles 3, 1, I put that in. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Where? On Mount Moriah. Is that in your notes? Okay. Both carried the wood of the sacrifice. Today's not my day, David. I'm, I'm not here. I'm somewhere else. 22, 6. Abraham took the wood of the, and laid it on Isaac, his son. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. There it is. John 19, 17. Jesus went out bearing his own cross. Both had a hope of resurrection. Genesis 22, 5. Abraham is talking to his three assistants here, and he says, look, the lad and I will do what? We're going up to sacrifice. But then what else did he say? And what? And who? Do you see it in your notes? Say it. What, what pronoun? And we will what? Return. Abraham understood by faith. Even if I kill Isaac, we're coming back. How did he know that? How did he know that? How did he know that by shoving the knife into the chest of his son, that God would raise him up and he and his son would return? How did he know it? Come on, tell me how he knew it. Because God promised. God said through Isaac, through Isaac, the promises will come. Remember that? Not Ishmael. And Abraham knew that. And he goes into this most terrible, most terrifying, worst circumstance he ever had on earth. To slay his own son, Steve. Imagine putting Peter on the... Well, he wouldn't let you. you know, he's too feisty. But can you imagine putting your son on an altar and having to kill him? First, your wife would be killing you. You better not tell your wife about this. I don't know if Abraham told Sarah. I don't think she'd ever let him out of the camp. <laughs> How did he know that? Because he knew a promise. Ken, he knew what? That God who promised is faithful. Faithful. How many of you know God is faithful? But faithful to what? You see, we make the issue, he's faithful to me. He's faithful to me. He is faithful to me. But that's not the formation or the foundation or the essence of his faithfulness. He's faithful to us. Why? Because he is faithful to himself and the promise that he made to his son, which we'll see in Psalms maybe next week. If you will be the deliverer, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Remember, I've been general with it in Psalm 2, 7, and 8. Remember that? He's faithful to himself, to his own eternal purpose being worked out in the incarnation of his son. That's the essence of God's faithfulness. It is an internal faithfulness and integrity of himself never varying from who, for who he is. He never changes. That faithfulness to himself as worked out and applied and manifested in the incarnation of the Son of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, that faithfulness is some way what Abraham 
understood by faith. And he knew, even if he, and what is it, even Job, remember Job 19? Even though he slay me, what? Yet will I trust him. And then what, what chapter is it later on in the 30s? And at the end of the days, I will stand upon the earth in my flesh. I will receive, see my redeemer. You see, I will see my redeemer. God was showing people in those days that resurrection was real. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe it. The Pharisees did. I think David talked to us about that one morning. And Jesus rebuked them. He said, God is a God of what? The living, not of the dead. Remember that. Now, Mark 9, 31. The Son of Man, Jesus is telling his disciples, is to be delivered up into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will, what? Rise three days later. Now, we talk about Abraham's faithfulness and faith in God to deliver his son. What about Isaac's obedience and trust in his father's will to be killed? Suppose you're the boy. Boy, about 20 years old. Suppose this is you on the wood. Can we trust our father enough? To know that even in the worst, he's going to be faithful to his promise to do good to us. I mean, Isaac, what had Isaac seen? What kind of obedience is this that that son would willingly lie down on the wood? You know, this boy could have beaten that old man up. Come on, 20 year old against a hundred and some odd year old. Are you kidding? Boom, it is finished. You ain't touching me with no knife. Take your hands off me. I'm not lying down on any wood. I'm out of here. You nuts, old man. What obedience. What verse am I quoting right now? That he was obedient even unto death. What verse? Come on, what verse? <laughs> obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. What verse is that? Philippians 2.8. And what is the result of the obedience of Isaac unto death? God provides a lamb and God shows him the way of deliverance, the death of a lamb. And so what is Philippians 2.8 says, obedient even unto death the cross, on the cross. Remember, that's the last words on uh, verse 8. Then what does verse 9 say? Wherefore also God has also what highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, this, this obedient, trusting son, son, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of things in the heavens, on the earth, and underneath the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. That means even unbelievers and the demonic will all bow and confess that Jesus is the Christ. Today they don't like it. They deny it. But there's coming a day when all creation from the beginning to the end will bow. Bow before this great one on his throne and say, you 
are the Lord of glory. Some will bow unto eternal life, and the rest will bow unto eternal damnation. Don't you ever think that unbelievers will not bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Don't you? you just read it. Did you just say? Everybody. How much? Everybody is going to bow, bow to Jesus. Today, you may be frustrated. Your frustration is misplaced. There's coming a day. And so, both of them are going to be raised. So when we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, we understand that God was sending his monogenes weos, this unique son, who would save his people by their, from their sin. Just let me quickly go through this. The issue of sonship. You see, we're dealing with something bigger than just a son of a father. We're dealing with the whole understanding and concept of sonship in the Bible. Sonship. And so let me just go through some of these things. And it's a big issue, and we'll go into more detail as we go through. First of all, sonship refers, in the Bible, sonship refers, can refer to the father's natural son. You know, natural uh, um, uh, father's nature. A son by natural conception images the father's human nature. Do we get that? A son born from a natural conception is the image of the father. Remember in Genesis, when Abraham lived 130, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So all of that. So, Joe, do you have a son? I call him Moose. What's his name? Nathan, you can say it loud. Okay, good. Nathan, does Nathan have your nature? Yeah. Now, that may be a problem as far as others are concerned, but... He's in your image and, you know, your likeness. And he certainly shares the mother's nature, but you understand what we're saying today. The nature of the parents naturally generate to the child. So he has a son, the father's nature. Very important that. The son of divine conception images the father's divine nature. The son of natural conception images the father's natural nature. Does that make sense? The son of divine nature images the father's what? Divine, I'm sorry, the, of divine, divine. Today is my tongue is at home. The son of divine conception. Remember Mary, you will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Images the father's divine nature. So we see that. Number two, sonship also refers to the filial. That's family, filial love between the father and his son. So when we see sonship in the Bible or son in the Bible, it can also refer to that very close filial love of the father and the son. Second Samuel 9, 4, 19, 4. The king, remember David, covered his face and cried when he heard about Absalom's death. Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The father's love for his son. You remember Matthew 17, 5. Jesus is called... Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus shines like the light and the voice from heaven. The Father says, what? You are my what? Beloved son. Agapetos. You are my beloved son. And then Jesus loves the Father. Sonship also can refer to adoption. Adoption. We're familiar with that. First Timothy 1, 2. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. There was a, a relationship here. 
there was not a legal adoption between Paul and Timothy, but there was a relational, if you would, adoption here. Adoption meaning that these two became, as it were, father and son in their relationship. Fourth, sonship refers to God's work of creation. In Psalm 89, 47, God has created all the sons of men. And then in that respect, I have here Hebrews 10, 5, a body you have prepared for me. God creates sons. In other words, he creates human beings. That's a category of sonship, created people. But even for the son of God, God the Father creates a body that will house, if you would, the Son of God. Remember, a body you have prepared for me. So the Son of God will take to himself a human body, which is a created body. But the one who lives in this created body, the Son of God, is uncreated. But he takes to himself a created body and a human nature and a body. And he becomes, if you would, the incarnate Son of God. So now that we've seen why Jesus is called unique, God's unique son, we're going to begin to turn our attention to how this son is described in the rest of the Old Testament. Okay? Any, by the way, any questions at all? Well, thank you so much. See you next week.